Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine & More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Stage combat, Washington, D.C. style, was on vivid display in the nation's capital all week, with moderate Democrats taking on liberal Democrats in the House, Republicans taking on Democrats in the Congress, the legislative branch taking on the executive branch, and at week's end, everyone in the political branches piling on against President Joe Biden. Two trillion dollar spending bills, one huge and the other humongous, were proceeding apace when a block of liberal members in the House declared that they would not support the smaller infrastructure bill, which already has passed the Senate and is on a glide path to becoming law until work on the larger reconciliation bill has been finished. But a group of moderate Democrats, including one Joe Manchin, have taken the precise opposite stance and secured Speaker Nancy Pelosi's assurance that the infrastructure bill would come up for a vote in the coming week. For her part, Pelosi dismissed the Sturm und Drang as part of the process and calmly insisted both bills were on track to pass. The January 6th Select Committee went from first to fourth gear in one move last week, issuing subpoenas to four of Trump's closest insiders, including former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and other executive branch officials, and serving notice that it had Trump's possible role in the insurrection and its aftermath at the forefront of the investigation. Trump himself already has promised to go to court to claim executive privilege, a stance that is silly on the law, but serious in its potential to stall out the clock until after the committee needs to wrap up its work. And finally, a set of searing images of Haitian migrants being manhandled by Department of Homeland Security agents at the Texas border brought down a hailstorm of criticism on President Biden, with everyone from all sides and branches, including his own senior officials, expressing disgust at the pictures. With Biden and the White House fixed in a laser focus on passing the big spending bills, it was a very unwelcome distraction, particularly since the broader immigration problem seems among the most intractable and perennial issues in government. To analyze these various skirmishes and help us separate the posturing from the positive, we have an awesome panel drawn from government and journalism. And they are... Peter Baker. Peter is the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times since 2008. He has won all three major awards devoted to White House reporting, the George R. Ford Prize for Distinguished Coverage of the Presidency, the Otto Beckman Memorial Award, and the Merriman Smith Memorial Award. He's the author of five books with a sixth in the works, as well as a political analyst for MSNBC and a returning guest, I'm very happy to say, on Talking Feds. Peter, thanks so much for coming back. Hey, thanks for having me. Alexi McCammond. Since 2017, Alexi has been a reporter for the political website Axios, 
and a much decorated journalist. In 2019, she received the Emerging Journalist Award from the National Association of Black Journalists. And she was more recently on Forbes 2020 30 Under 30 list. It's her first time on Talking Feds. Alexi, a pleasure to welcome you. Thank you so much, Harry. I appreciate you having me on. And Congressman Ted Lieu, in his third term representing California's 33rd Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives, he sits on the House Judiciary Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and he is co-chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee. He is a former active duty officer in the U.S. Air Force and currently serves as a colonel in the reserves. That's a very high up position uh, stationed at L.A. Air Force Base. Congressman Liu, A, thank you for your service and B, thank you as always for coming to Talking Feds. Thank you, Harry. All right. I thought we'd start with this whole crazy situation with the two big bills in Congress. So we're careening toward a high stakes showdown in Congress with several moving parts. On these two big domestic spending bills, there's a $1 trillion, approximately, public works bill that has passed the Senate. And the Speaker has said she'll bring it up as early as Monday, and it should for that reason, be able to pass quickly and get the president's signature, but not so fast. A block of members on the left are saying they will not support it unless both houses, the House and the Senate, first finish work on the much bigger and much, much less developed several trillion dollar reconciliation bill. So uh, let me start here. Do you perceive that the liberal members here are really prepared to tube the bill on the verge of passage, which would hand the party and Biden an historic loss? Or is this posturing? I think it's important for folks to understand the two bills. The first is a good bill. It's a good bipartisan infrastructure bill. It's a good jobs bill. The Build Back Better Act is a massive jobs bill. And both are part of the president's agenda. Congress is going to get both to the president's desk. How it's done remains to be seen. Just because a bill doesn't pass on the floor once doesn't mean that then we stop. We just keep on going and then folks can bring up bills again. And oftentimes bills pass on the second round or the third round. But I do believe that at the end of the day, both bills will get onto President Biden's desk for signature. So that suggests possibly that they will be true to their word or threat and push back this week but that won't be the end of the story and there'll be more negotiation to come. Is that kind of how you see things shaping up? Everything is very fluid. I think it right. depends, frankly, on what do the members of the Democratic caucus perceive as happening with the Build Back Better bill. If folks sense that there are forces who are going to stop it in its entirety, uh, then I don't think uh, that's a good sign. If people sense that, yes, this bill is going to get done, it's just going to take some time, then I think the caucus can move forward. What realistically can Biden do or should he do to help get these bills across the finish line? Well, it's a great question. And, I, and I'm not sure that they know for sure, because if they knew, they would have already done it. But I think one of the things that President Biden has shown is a remarkable patience for 
the slow and ugly way legislation works on Capitol Hill, right? Let's face it, this is a president who more than any since Gerald Ford and LBJ understands Congress and understands that it can't be rushed at times, understands that as much as it may be frustrating, you can't give up either and that you need to basically sit it out. So he has a meeting that lasts for five hours with members of Congress. When was the last time a president met members of Congress for five hours? He's willing to sit there and listen and more uh, significantly probably he's willing to sit there and talk, but he's going to let it play out. And I think that patience has been important because any normal president, any normal person would say, well, this is crazy. This is nonsense. Let's just wipe our hands out. He, he knows he can't. He knows it takes a certain amount of time in Washington to get to the place where you might've guessed on day one, it was going to get to anyway, but we have to feel like we have to go through the seven layers of Dante's hell before we actually arrive at the final spot, wherever that is. Great point. So let's move over to these other forces. The speaker has promised moderates in the House, but also in particular two senators named Manchin and Cinema, whose names we hear a lot in this Congress, that the House would take up the infrastructure bill, this smaller one first, and leave the larger one later. Why are Manchin and other moderates eager to play it that way? It seems like just a procedural issue, but it's obviously a big commitment that they feel they've gotten from the speaker. I think that latter point is one that is correct. There are tons of negotiations and conversations going on. As the congressman just said, we should reiterate, things are super fluid. We know that Senator Joe Manchin is someone who previously served as a governor, and he treats his negotiations and conversations in that way. He doesn't always go where the rest of the folks are going because he wants to make sure he's going to get something done. And that's not to say that other people aren't that way, but that's how he's really been approaching these talks in particular. I think that we know from reporting how Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer have been in deep discussions with these centrists. They've also been in deep discussions with the folks on the progressive side who are often louder than the Joe Manchins of the party. I think that that's how he's approaching it, looking at it in terms of what he can get done, not what everyone else wants him to do. Right. Well, let me just follow up with that in terms of what he can get done. We know that he will very possibly not support the entire Building Back Better several trillion dollar bill. Why does he think that doing it in this order is important for his overall strategy of temporizing a bit and cutting back on the big bill when it comes up for a vote? Well, we know that he's been floating different options privately and publicly for sort of how to deal with the massive price tag and the, the monstrosity that is the Build Back Better reconciliation package. It was just last weekend, we reported this at Axios, that in a private meeting with Procter & Gamble employees, Senator Manchin was saying that he wanted what he was calling a strategic delay of a vote on the $3.5 trillion package until after the midterms. And look, I think that Part of that coming out through the media and others helped Manchin reposition himself in these negotiations. But I also think that it helped change the conversation completely because he then eventually moved away from that threat almost to blow up what Pelosi and Schumer wanted in terms of a timeline for this vote. So everybody's compromising. And I think when he moved away from that extreme line, he saw this as the best way forward. Yeah, that's a really good point. He has taken it to the brink and been an expert 
practitioner of brinksmanship, but for the most part, he's then come home to the party. Peter, I want to come back to you and your comment that Biden might like to wash his hands of it, but he knows he can't, I think you said. How important is the passage of these two bills to the success, real or perceived, of his first term, which has been pretty noteworthy for the achievements he's managed to put together with a very slim legislative majority. Does his presidency ride on success here? Well, look, the national instinct in Washington, particularly among journalists, is to say that each and every big test is the one defining thing that will shape this presidency. If he fails, it's all over. Having said that, it is hard to overstate how important this particular moment is because he has put so much riding on these two pieces of legislation. He has really done more in this one bill, the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, which is a misnomer since they're doing anything but reconciling. But the $3.5 trillion bill is a huge bill. It covers so many different priorities of this president from pre-K, child care, elder care, community college, but also climate change until this week, immigration. Now that seems to be out because of the parliamentarian, but so many different priorities is as if FDR said, let's do the entire New Deal in one bill. Or LBJ said, let's do the entire Great Society in one bill. Presidents don't do that. They've discovered that incremental bills work better, except that today polarization is so bad that Biden's calculation is if I don't do it all now, if I don't get it all now, I'm not going to get it at all. And if he doesn't get this bail through, it's hard to see what he gets through in the future. He will have the whiff of failure, whether it's fair or not, because he puts so much riding on it. So it's a a high stakes gamble and he put the whole pot in the middle and we're going to see where it ends up. Congressman, if I can come back to you on this big bill that the progressive caucus really want to come up first, it's not just a matter of putting it before the House or either body, because my sense is that at this point, it is very far from being worked out. Do you have a sense of what has to happen for it actually to be ready to hit the floor? The House has actually made significant progress on the bill. All the committees have done the markups of the relevant language. And there is now a framework for agreement on the pay force. The bill is going to be largely paid for. And so to say it's $3.5 trillion is not actually accurate in terms of spending. It's going to be paid for spending. So people would say it's 3.5 million paid for. I think that'd be more accurate to say it that way. So for example, when Republicans did the massive tax giveaway to the rich, they didn't call it the $5 trillion bill because a lot of that was paid for. So people just are inaccurately describing this Build Back Better bill right now because much of it will in fact be paid for. And there's a couple of tax bills on the floor that are really connected. And it is my sense in general that tax policy, like a lot of other things, is in the midst of a real transition and some of the bedrock economic assumptions are maybe being revisited. I want to shift and ask about the speaker's position. It strikes me that there is all this buzzing and maneuvering and posturing going on. And she's just this very calm, almost Zen-like figure in the middle of it all. Is this basically for her a matter of letting everyone just get their sound bites in, run around, but then stay to her plan at the end of the day? Speaker Pelosi is amazing. Uh, I would never bet against Speaker Pelosi in terms of legislation. Uh, She listens very well and she 
has a good grasp of where the caucus is. I also note a lot of this is simply arbitrary self-imposed deadlines and self-imposed procedures. So for example, the president could have come out and said, you know, we're going to do the Build Back Better bill. And then later he could have announced an infrastructure bill. He chose not to do that. He chose to sort of have a different order, but there's nothing magical about this order. There's nothing magical about any of these self-imposed deadlines because their fundamental agreement was always, this is the president's agenda. It's these two bills. And at the end of the day, I believe both bills will get to the president's desk. What do you think about that, Alexa? I mean, we are hearing there's a ticking time clock. It's basically got to be now. Is that again posturing and just a way to get recalcitrant members to focus? Is the now or never sense that we're hearing a lot overstated? I don't think that it's overstated. I think that there is a little bit of posturing to be sure. But I think that especially when it comes to Speaker Pelosi, as you mentioned, her kind of position throughout all of this as a calm, clear figure, she's focused on holding these votes on these two massive bills. And that, as of now, seems to remain her goal to ensure that a vote is held on both these bills by the end of next week, which, of course, is a huge task given that Congress must pass legislation funding the government by September 30th and deal, of course, with an impending deadline to raise the debt ceiling. There's a lot going on. And she sent a letter to fellow Democratic members today that said, quote, the intensity continues as we move forward to pass two jobs bills next week. So she's kind of acknowledging the, in her words, intensity behind what is facing folks like Congressman Ted Lieu and others in the coming days. Although I do want to concur with the congressman here. There was controversy even at the last election. Was she a little too old? Did she need to pledge one term? And she's been pretty darn magisterial just in her leadership chops. I want to follow up on the point you just made, Alexi, to complete this crazy Rubik's Cube that they've got to put together. We do have a looming deadline to fund the government and one shortly thereafter to avert a first ever United States debt default. And we've got this impasse where the Republicans are opposing legislation to a member to keep the government funded. Is it your congressman's assumption that, in fact, they're going to stay monolithic? Because it seems to me whatever McConnell says about it's the Democrats' responsibility, the party is going to get tagged for this if they just vote in block to resist any kind of legislation to ease this crisis. I want people to first understand what this debt limit is. It's backwards looking. It's basically to cover the spending in the past, a lot of which was done under the Trump administration. So this is not about future spending. This is simply to cover our debts based on what happened in the past, including under the former president. We just have to do this because the United States just doesn't default on our debts. If we did that, that would be catastrophic. I hope Republicans will do the right thing and basically cover the debts that the former Republican administration incurred. Democrats are going to vote for this. It's something we have to do. And it's also what's in the Constitution. It does seem to me, as the congressman says, it's a constitutional responsibility they have in the past, I think, blundered and wound up bearing the political cost of at least last minute flirtation with insolvency. Why are the Republicans to a person adamant about taking this stance? Won't it 
result in their being politically tagged with the cost of it come the midterms. Look, Republicans have sort of refused so far to vote to raise the debt limit because they're arguing, well, because Democrats are trying to pass this $3.5 trillion bill, then they should just raise the debt ceiling on their own. When historically, as you both know well, this has usually been a bipartisan issue and a bipartisan vote. Congressman, do you find that that's what they're sticking to still? Republicans and their opposition to taking up a vote on this? Are, are they really... Are they leaving it at while you guys are trying to pass $3.5 trillion? They're not connected, right? Proposed Build Back Better Act is something that's in the future. Uh, This debt limit is backwards looking. It's look at spending largely under the Trump administration. And because the former administration exceeded the debt limit, we're going to have to raise it. Uh, That's what this is about. So it's just simply false Republicans to connect these two things. I hope they would put country over party and vote for this. So we'll see what happens. I would also think just from their self-interested position, but obviously I'm, I'm missing some of the calculations. Let's have a closeout question on this. Will there be a floor vote on the infrastructure bill this week? Yes. I do believe there will be a floor vote. All right. There you have it. There are so many moving parts here, yet there's the calm figure of the speaker in the middle seeming to say, been there, done that. This will all work itself out too. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we dig up the dirt on the agave plant to find out the difference between tequila and mezcal. So first things first, tequila is a type of mezcal, much like bourbon is a type of whiskey. In general, tequilas are mezcals, but not all mezcals are tequilas. Allow me to explain. Tequila can only come from the blue agave plant in specific regions of Mexico, like the region of Jalisco, where the city of tequila is located. No coincidence there. Mezcal, however, can be made from many varieties of agave, specifically from the heart of the agave, known as the piña. The distillery process for tequila and mezcal is also different. Tequila is produced by steaming the blue agave and then distilling it in copper stills for a toasty, clean taste. One of our top picks at Total Wine & More is El Padrino Blanco Tequila, which is double distilled in copper pot stills. Twice the reason to love it. On the other hand, mezcal, which appropriately means oven-cooked agave, is cooked in earthen pits with wood and charcoal before being distilled in clay pots. No wonder mezcal, which is typically consumed straight, has more of a smoky, earthy taste like you'll find in one of our favorite bottles, Mezcal Sacrificio Reposado. Of course, the best way to get to know the differences between tequila and mezcal is to pick up a bottle of each from your Total Wine & More and pour hundreds of years of tradition right into your glass. Cheers! Let's move on to the other big development on Capitol Hill this week, which is the issuance of subpoenas by the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. And they went from a fairly methodical, could we have some documents, please? They pole vaulted over what might have been some middle steps to subpoena four of Trump's 
innermost circle, all of whom, or at least three of whom, have been reported to have had conversations before and after with the former president about the insurrection. So really, the mother load of the people who could answer, what did he know and when did he know it? From what we know, how badly can these four hurt Trump if they're forced to testify? These four Trump aides who are being subpoenaed to testify are some of the closest folks to him. And in those pivotal final weeks of his presidency, when, as we know, through really great investigative reporting and otherwise that led to the events of January 6th. Meadows, as we know, Mark Meadows was involved in the planning of the efforts to subvert the results of the election, according to assertions from the committee. We know Steve Bannon, as you just mentioned, talked about it in different ways on his podcast. He talked about encouraging Trump to get involved back in December. And we know that folks like Congressman Adam Schiff, who's really helping lead this investigation is serious about getting to the bottom of what these folks knew and when. So let me cut to the big question. In the Trump years, the Trump and his circle were able to smother these subpoenas just because of the arbitrary and really unfortunate disconnect between federal court timing and congressional timing. So here, Trump's already said he's going to bring an executive privilege claim. I'll just say with my lawyer's hat on, it is 100% bogus. The executive privilege claim is solely the prerogative of the current administration, and they won't bring it. But how concerned are you, Congressman, that by pressing spurious, even lousy claims, they can just gum up the works long enough to keep the committee from getting the information that the best witnesses have. I've said this before, and I'm just going to say it again. Yeah. Congressional subpoenas are meaningless. We found that out the last four years because they simply litigate it, and then it just takes a very long time to get a decision. It took the Judiciary Committee over two years, over two years, to get Damergan in to testify. Has there been talk in the caucus about, I, I would think this would be one that should involve the filibuster. Some bill to force the courts to, to look at congressional subpoenas lickety split instead of methodically over two years or 18 months. It's actually easier than that. I have legislation uh, that would allow the House to execute our inherent contempt powers. The Supreme Court has upheld the House's ability to use inherent contempt. In the past, the House has used this to compel witnesses to testify by taking their freedom away. My bill actually is less aggressive. It simply authorizes the House to fine witnesses up to $100,000 uh, if they ignore congressional subpoenas. And it simply requires a rules change to the House rules. The Senate doesn't have to weigh in. The White House doesn't have to weigh in. It's simply a rules change. For the life of me, I cannot understand why the Democratic leadership in the House of Representatives has not done this yet. So, all right, that passes tomorrow. You impose a $100,000 fine Wednesday. I assume, at least in the first instance, the witness who was fined goes to the federal courts and makes some ridiculous constitutional claim that winds its way very slowly. Or is there some kind of magic bullet for that? So here's the difference. Right now, they would do that anyways, right? Litigate this at federal court. 
And then in the day, if they lose, they come in and they testify. The difference here is they know that if they lose, not only do they have to come in and testify, uh -huh. they will be on the hook for $100,000. So that's a difference. It puts a burden on them litigate these frivolous claims. Right now, they have a free shot and all the incentive in the world to bring a bogus claim in the courts. And here you would reverse the supposition. Well, look, people are vaguely thinking about this. I don't understand why they're not just assuming it will happen. And in fact, I think the leadership might be like Schiff. That's, that's one real reason they pulled out the big artillery now. If they're going to have a fight, let's have it and start it out. Do you just assume we're going to be in this same depressing dynamic of claims being tied up in the federal courts? Well, when you look at Schiff's words himself from a breakfast he held earlier this week, he's projecting a lot of confidence in the new era that has come with the Biden administration relative to the roadblocks legally and otherwise that House Democrats in particular faced with the Justice Department under the Trump administration when they were seeking different forms of testimony. He said, quote, we may have additional tools now that we didn't before, including a Justice Department that may be willing to pursue criminal contempt when people deliberately flout compulsory process. So he's seeming to feel like things are going to be moving in the right direction legally because of how the Justice Department might be able to act in a way that is, I guess, more impartial than they were under Trump. Well, he's an alum of the Justice Department. I'm sure he's spoken to people. But look, it's just an imperative that we find the truth and an absolute repugnant situation that for these arbitrary and really frivolous reasons, we're held up doing it. That's my preface. But let me say, as another alum of DOJ, I don't know. There is a standing opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel that says we're not going to do it. What they've done in the past is hold them in contempt and then a civil case ensues in the federal courts. Was it valid? Takes two years. The congressman is saying we'll do it with our inherent power and impose the big fine and that'll be held up at the end of the day. Might take a long time, but still they'll be really gambling with something. I think what Congressman Schiff is saying here is the Department of Justice will do the third route. We'll refer charges to them and ask them to find criminal contempt. But even if there's a clear case for criminal contempt, the department has said, unless it changes its standing OLC opinion, sorry, we're not in the business as between Congress and a current or former executive branch official bringing criminal charges. So my prediction is DOJ is not going to get into that business. Again, that's why I think we have to change the House rules to allow inherent contempt because the threat of a massive fine that the witness has to pay personally, that could actually compel some action. Yeah. Let's say that they're able to gum up the works this way so we can expect the most important witnesses Meadows, probably Scavino here, et cetera, to try this route. I do think it's clear that while that's happening, and they have very good lawyers, Doug Leiter, the head of the House, the general counsel, they'll keep going. Does either of you have a sense of how much they're able to put together, including with documents, if these biggest players 
are removed from the equation? Does it mean that the whole enterprise is basically feckless? Or is there a lot that can be cobbled together even if they're forced to forego the big guns? I think that's a good question. They've been doing work and requesting documents and other forms of evidence for weeks and weeks now that have no bearing on these testimonies. And they don't really need the testimonies to have this other evidence. And in August, the select committee requested a ton of records from several federal agencies and various social media and telecommunications companies that pertain to the riot on January 6th and the things that happened before and after. Of course, we all watched that hearing or were there at the hearing in July with Capitol Police officers detailing the events of that day. So they've been collecting evidence and details, but of course, they want more because it'd be necessary and helpful. As a House impeachment manager for the second impeachment of the former president, it was very clear that when the former president realized there was an attack on the Capitol, there were hours and hours and hours where nothing came out of the White House to get the National Guard to the Capitol. And they can remain silent, but they can't change the fact that there was this very large gap in time where there's simply no action coming out of the former president. And I think you could have people testify as to why that is, but even if they didn't testify, I think most people understood that the former president just didn't do anything. There was more than inaction. There was this very bizarre jubilation. He's in this party and seemingly, you know, loving it. That that comes through in the call to McCarthy. That will be the other battle royale when they subpoena members like McCarthy or Jordan. But here's an example of mid-rank people that they might have tried first, except they were jumping over to get the fight started. All kinds of people were at that party. All kinds of people were around the president who are not the innermost loyalists. And they could build up a pretty good record of this attitude of the president when all hell was breaking loose. There's also an important point. A lot of this has to do with January 6th, but there's more. Meadows is deeply involved in the completely corrupt effort to get the Department of Justice to come into the fight after the 6th, presumably there are people, for instance, the high officials at the department who refuse to play ball, who might still be able to testify and would be willing to about those critical encounters. Could I ask the congressman a quick question? When you were back home during August recess, were folks talking about January 6th at all? Like, are people back in California in your district talking about it in the same ways that we are and focusing on it or what's been your experience with it breaking through? They were. People are still deeply concerned both about January 6th as well as their continuing alleged claims of election fraud. And it's very uh, disturbing to people that you have a large segment of the American population who won't accept the election results. So, Peter, I wonder if you have a thought about this. First, do you think that we should just expect a repeat of the same federal court slog that proved successful in both impeachments as the congressman who was a manager in the second and whether or not there are any valid claims for the witnesses to bring? 
I'm not a lawyer, but it seems to me that on executive privilege, first of all, as I understand it, Steve Bannon was not working for the White House or the president at the time. So I don't see an executive privilege claim there. It seems to me that Cash Patel was not working in the White House at the time. He worked in the Pentagon and Pentagon officials are usually subjected to a greater degree of requirements to speak to Congress. They're not White House aides. So then you have Scavito and Meadows. Obviously, the president can make a claim. And they, they, we've seen them making claims that, that take a long time to, to adjudicate. So it could be a delaying tactic that gets you passed next year, depending on how it plays out. But there does seem to be, obviously, a, a need for Congress to understand better what was happening in the White House on that day. That's the one area, I think, of the story that has not been documented very much. We've got cameras all over the Capitol. We've got 535 witnesses plus to what happened in the Capitol that day. But we don't know what was really going on in the White House, despite great efforts by journalists and others to shed light on it. And I think that's a really key point. It is a key point. The legal question, I am a lawyer, will be whether they bring a completely spurious claim, because as I mentioned, it's really up to the Biden administration, not Trump now, to decide on executive privilege. But anybody can bring a claim for anything, and nobody knows it better than Donald Trump, who just this week sued his niece. But you seem to have a pretty solid knowledge of the different players to the extent they've come forward in the public realm. Let's say that Meadows and Scavinos are able to gum things up and not ever raise their right hand during the pendency of the investigation. What's your sense of the other's mid-range players, ones who might be willing, in terms of their ability to paint a fairly full picture of the information we really need to learn? I'd say two things. One, there were a lot of people who quit the White House that day or the next day as a result of the events. And so you would imagine that they would be a little more willing to come forward, given that they clearly felt aggrieved in some way or another by what the president did or didn't do that day. So that's one area you would think of possible uh, avenue of research. The point though, is that what we forget is how empty the West Wing was yeah. on January 6th. Because of COVID, because the election had been lost and people were moving on and getting new jobs, it was a kind of a ghost town of a building. There were not the normal swarms of people in and out of the Oval Office that day. Obviously, the Pence people were there in the building, but not necessarily with the president. I think Robert O'Brien was out of town, the National Security Advisor that day. The number of people who actually physically were in the presence that day is probably a limited number. There's probably some way to ascertain who they were. Usually in the normal White House, they keep records of that kind of thing. I don't know how good the record keeping was in this one, but it's a limited universe of people. This is a great point, and it also factors in to what the president knew and when he knew it, because we found out here who is Mark Meadows, that he is so important now, who is Scavino, same as who is Sidney Powell and who is Rudolph Giuliani, the very people who were left, the last loyalists who were completely unabashed about lying or saying anything that Trump wanted to hear. So his decision-making is in this kind of echo chamber where the very people who are around are the ones who are telling him just what he wants to hear. And the very few people who might be urging him otherwise were either not physically there or were, say, like Ivanka Trump, who's been reported to have gone to the Oval Office three times that day and said, you've got to do something. Getting Ivanka Trump to testify before Congress seems problematic politically as well as, you know, potentially legally. 
So yeah, I think the range of people who have knowledge about that is relatively limited. That doesn't mean it's not possible, but there are ways, as you've seen in the last few years, to make that a a difficult proposition. How long did it take to get Don McGahn to come testify? What he had already told Robert Mueller and had been published in a 400-page report. Ivanka is a very good person to raise because eventually when Meadows thinks, "Uh uh-oh, I better do something, he doesn't even go to Trump. He goes to Ivanka, please, can you try to help? My view is that unless we execute our inherent contempt power, the only witnesses that will testify are going to be witnesses who voluntarily choose to testify. And as you see it, that's a really mixed bag and less than half of what we need, it sounds like, to really have what should be an imperative for democracy, just the knowledge of what the hell happened in the biggest challenge to constitutional rules since at least the Civil War. All right, it is time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today, we will be explaining the very important and difficult issue of when terrorists are tried in regular federal courts and when they are tried in special courts set up by Congress, for example, in Guantanamo. And to read, we are really happy to be able to welcome John Cryer. He wears many hats as an actor, producer, comedian, director, and writer. His breakout role, talking Fed's trivia here, came in 1984 in the movie No Small Affair, and a part for which I myself auditioned before him. But that's another story. He is most known for his role as Alan Harper in the CBS sitcom Two and a Half Men. In 2009 and 2012, John won two Primetime Emmy Awards and received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2011. So I give you John Cryer on the trying of terrorists in legislative courts or regular federal courts. Legislative courts and terrorist detention. Article 3 of the Constitution, which establishes the judiciary, provides that federal judges have life tenure and salaries that cannot be decreased during their terms in office. These features are meant to guarantee judicial independence from the two other more political branches of government, so the people who come before the federal courts can expect a fair shake. But the Constitution also permits Congress to create tribunals, commonly known as Article I courts, because Article I enumerates Congress's powers. There are limits on what Article I courts can do. Congress can't just create an alternative system of Article I courts to replace or duplicate the work of Article III courts. And Congress can't assign Article I courts inherently judicial matters, such as federal criminal prosecutions or civil cases between private parties. Instead, Article I courts are permitted only in certain areas or for certain kinds of disputes. For example, Article I courts exist in U.S. territories for civil disputes between government and citizens, and for military matters. Notably, Article I courts have been used to try certain suspected terrorists. Captured alleged perpetrators of the September 11 attacks are detained in a U.S. military base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. They have no right to be tried in Article III courts. Additionally, the government has successfully argued that because al-Qaeda routinely violated the rules of law, for example by not wearing military uniforms, they are not subject to international treaties such as the Geneva Conventions. The government could try suspected terrorists in Article III courts in most instances, and many officials and organizations argue that that is the better path, but thus far it has not been taken. Instead, Guantanamo detainees are tried in military tribunals where key constitutional protections, such as a jury trial, are not provided, and where judges lack life tenure and salary protection. 
To date, two Guantanamo detainees have been tried by military tribunals. The Supreme Court has upheld the use of military tribunals to try suspected terrorists. Crucially, however, the court imposed significant constraints. First, a detainee has the right to bring a habeas corpus action in federal court, that is, in an Article III court, to argue that he doesn't meet the criteria for being tried before a military commission. Second, the Supreme Court held that a right to a habeas corpus action in federal court includes the right to a meaningful opportunity to prove one's habeas case. Lower courts have interpreted this language as conferring a right to minimal due process in that proceeding, such as notice of the factual basis for being characterized as an unlawful combatant and a fair opportunity to rebut that basis before a neutral decision maker. For Talking Feds, I'm John Cryer. Thank you very much, John Cryer, for that explanation of a really important but intricate issue. John can be seen as Lex Luthor in the final season of Supergirl, currently airing on The CW. Equitable access to high-quality health care is a right for everyone. It's not a privilege for some. Our Health California is a grassroots advocacy community fighting for statewide and federal health policies that advance affordable care for everyone. With more than 1 million health care supporters, Our Health California educates patients, health enthusiasts, and voters about health and mental health care, then connects supporters with lawmakers to advocate for change. Since 2019, Our Health California advocates have sent more than 46,000 messages to their lawmakers and taken nearly 168,000 advocacy actions. Visit ourhealthcalifornia.org to join and make your voice heard. It's free. Again, that's ourhealthcalifornia.org. All right, moving not quite off our shores, but pretty close. The Biden administration suddenly has a hellacious policy and public relations problem on its hands, as over the course of a couple of days this week, some 15 thousand Haitian migrants crossed the southern Texas border. Let me start here with just a factual clarification question. Many of these 15,000 we know had left Haiti as long ago as the 2010 earthquake. Why is it now that there's this huge confluence of migrants coming in in full force? So you have political turmoil, you have the earthquake, and I think you have perception overseas that the Biden administration would be more welcoming than the Trump administration. And, and so, you know, put a, a number of those factors together, it might have. So let me just follow up, because what the administration has tried to do is on the supply side, if you will, to hold it. You have Kamala Harris and DHS Secretary Mayorkas, who said, if you come to the United States illegally, you're going to be returned and won't succeed really trying to be starchy to keep the flow from beginning. At this point, do we have to say, is that just a losing game? Is there really no way to significantly reduce the flow of legal and illegal migrants to our shore? Under our laws, if people have the right to seek asylum. Uh, I also do note that uh, at the Statue of Liberty National Monument, uh, you do have there inscribed, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. So America has always been a beacon of freedom uh, for people around the world. And we took people who fled Cuba. We took people who fled Vietnam. There are folks who are now fleeing Haiti. 
and they have the right to put in their claims for why uh, they should be allowed to enter the United States. They have the right if they enter legally, right? They don't have the right to sue for asylum if they just come illegally across the border. Isn't that true? Yeah. What Vice President Harris has said in the past, as well as Secretary Mayorkas, is, is correct that if uh, you try to enter in illegally, the Biden administration will take you and return you back. Without your being able to put in a claim. Let me cut to the chase here and play devil's advocate. Everybody, right, left, members of his own administration are really piling on Biden here. And we did see these very scary looking soldiers on horseback. They're not going to be doing that anymore, by the way. And we thought they were whipping people, though it was just their reins. But look, border crossings are at their highest level in decades. The law says, as you started with, Congressman, you can get asylum if you have a well-founded fear of persecution. Most of the migrants are here for different reasons. We actually haven't deported that many so far. A lot have been permitted to stay. So why isn't the sort of grown-up response here, heartless as it sounds, that as long as we haven't changed the law, this is just how it works. It's vivid. It's been thrust in America's face. But we got to push some people back. That means use of force. And as damaging politically as it may be, it's really just a kind of a forced game. What's wrong with that chain of reasoning? I think it's reflective of a larger feeling that many Haitians and Black folks feel that these policies are inherently anti-Black. So to see these images resurfacing is just a reminder to a lot of people of the disparity in treatment and the legal loopholes and cracks that I think a lot of Haitians have experienced. There was an analysis, I think, that the Associated Press put out sometime this week that found that Haitians in particular are granted asylum the lowest rate of any other group with consistently high asylum numbers of asylum seekers. So I think that that's a big part of it, too. And while the images are harrowing, I think a lot of the anger isn't only about the treatment. It's about the policy and the issues there. So are you saying, actually, the law's okay. It's not that the law's inherently racist, but it is being applied in a discriminatory fashion. That's the real beef. And that's something that the Biden administration, without any legislative help, could ameliorate or even cure. In a sense, yes. There is data that shows discrepancy in availability of those who are granted asylum. And so I think that's something that folks want the Biden administration to look at. Peter, Congressman, is this just really the bad luck of some terrible pictures or does the broader criticism reflect a genuine, serious beef that the Biden administration ought to be dealing with? Well, I'm pleased there's an investigation that's going to occur into uh, what actually happened. I also note that the border issues uh, are not new. Biden has issues with his border, as did Donald Trump, as did Obama, as did Bush, as did Clinton, as did Reagan. If you just look at what prior presidents have said about our borders, you'll see it is the same recurring issues over and over again. That's how Guantanamo started, the first Haitian boat cost crisis under George W. But it, this really feels like a Groundhog Day kind of issue. Yeah, but here's the thing. President Biden came into office on, among other things, two promises. One, 
he was going to be more empathetic and compassionate than Donald Trump when it came to immigration. He was going to lower the temperature and stop playing the politics of division. And two, he was going to be a more competent, more effective, more mature president. And I think at this point, when he says he's a unifier, the one thing he's done is unify everybody against him when it comes to how he's handling this immigration. On the right, they are just pummeling him. If you watch Fox, you read he's opened the borders and he's had the worst crisis ever. And it's all because he's weak and he doesn't care about us as a nation. And on the left, it's the other side. He's being so harsh. He's keeping too many Trump policies. Look at how awful he's treating people who are coming across the border. His own special envoy resigned at protests saying that his policies were inhumane. So basically, he has made exactly nobody happy right now. But what Biden, I think, would like more than anything to do is just make the issue go away. He doesn't want to deal with it, doesn't want to have to address it. He does have this big infrastructure bill. He does have the big social spending bill that he'd rather focus on. And this is just causing him heartache across the board. He has yet to figure out what that magic key is to settle the situation down enough so it does become at least the chronic problem that it has always been, as opposed to the acute problem it seems to be at the moment. I think that analysis is dead on, Peter. But does he have a, a good or not even not terrible choice if he just turned to his advisors and said, okay, what do I do to make this terrible headache go away? What can people tell him? Anybody? The problem is that actual solution is not what you can do tomorrow, but what you can do in a long-term basis. Yes. Right? Congress knows about this, obviously. Congress has been trying and failing to think of a broader, more sweeping, more comprehensive approach to this that would address both security and people who are already here in a way that both sides can live with. And George W. Bush push for a compromise plan didn't work. Obama pushed for a compromise plan didn't work. Trump never really tried. And Biden has put in legislation, but not really tried. And the truth is, you're going to continue to have situations like this until you have something broader, deeper, and more enduring than tomorrow's enforcement issues. When Trump tried his tactics, it didn't work either. I mean, those massive, large convoys that they kept showing pictures of on Fox, guess which presidential administration they came up under? The Trump administration's. People kept coming under the Trump administration and they would show up at the border and they would basically, you know, try to find a border patrol agent and, and then try to basically not go across it legally, but basically turn themselves in. And that's what people kept doing under the Trump administration, regardless of what Donald Trump tried. So it's not clear to me uh, that if you did harsher tactics, it would result in anything better. Look, I worked on this at DOJ. It seems there are two core problems, it seems to me. One, a massive lack of enforcement and adjudicatory resources and just an overly narrow asylum channel. It is a fact that many of the people don't fit the rubric that we now assign it. If we're serious about a more humane policy, we just have to have some channel that permits people to, to be here for the traditional reasons of, you know, they want to make a better life. Not just anybody, but it's that, I think, that is directly tied to the people on horses whipping their reins. Another, I don't think we'll solve that one this week either. I'm with Peter on this. We just have a couple minutes left for our final feature of five words or fewer in which we serve up a question from a listener and we each have to answer in five words or fewer. We have sort of a different one, a kind of reflection, I guess, on the news industry by Carol Yano who asked, why is the Gabby Petito case so huge? Anybody? Five words or fewer. America loves death and blondes. Oh. Am I wrong? The honesty that I, I haven't really followed the story, so I, didn't, yeah. I don't even really know what's going on. <laughs> okay. 
So you want to punt? <laughs> yes, please, sir. <laughs> uh, I have a similar answer, which is I am not sure. I would like to think about it longer in a college class, but for now, I'll just say I can't improve on Alexi. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Alexi, Peter, and Congressman Ted Lieu. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Record Edit Podcast. Our editors are Dustin Naus and Matt McArdle. David Lieberman, Rosie Don Griffin, and Olivia Henriksen are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Ray Cohen-Gilbert and Kalena Tano. And our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Thanks very much to John Cryer for explaining the vexing and complicated issue of where terrorists may be tried. Our gratitude goes, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time. <laughs>